Sales development continues to grow in importance as a critical component of a successful go-to-market strategy. And with the explosion of new tools, technology, and processes, the sales development industry itself is thriving, as seen with the growth of the 10-bound sales development market map over at 10bound.com. On this podcast, we'll dive deep and go beyond sales development to think about the future of technology, processes, and tools in the industry with our host, noted futurist, author, and sales development practitioner, Justin Michael. Welcome to Beyond Sales Development. Tune in each week and be sure to hit subscribe, leave a comment, and turn on notifications to never miss an episode. And now, Beyond Sales Development with your host, Justin Michael. Hey there, Justin Michael from Beyond Sales Development, and I've got Greg Woodward from Woodward Strategies and uh, coming in from D.C. and excited to talk about the future of sales development. To kick it off, Greg, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Thanks good. For having me on. Yeah, I wanted to create a show to just dive into the 202 content, as I call it, the deeper content, yeah. right? So right off the bat, I'm really curious how you're approaching sales development outbound prospecting, you know, with Woodward strategies, how are you future-proofing it? How are you responding to this really unique moment? Because I think you'll probably have a, a cool angle for our listeners. For sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, I love the work that you're doing. I, I follow the things you write and post, and I think it, it really does have a view into, you know, where this industry is going. So much has happened in the last few years. Where I fit into it is I'm a bit more of an old schooler. 20 years ago, I was a telemarketer in my first job and I was 16 years old. I was too, and, uh, 21. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the best job ever, you know, because it really kind of calibrates your, the way you think about communication and it rips the bandaid off of, of being afraid to pick up the phone, right? Where it's really, where I really fit in now is I have a program that B2B companies onboard their outbound reps with. And the way it's played out is, is they usually put their account executives through it also after the outbound team. And it goes through a sequence, right? So we're, we're, we're going through a sequence of steps that I've tested and iterated as an entrepreneur. I used to be the CEO of a company for four years, and I was doing outreach to uh, large retailers to bring them on as clients. And I was using the same process. But what has really changed, I mean, I remember when we used to use fax machines back you know, 15 years ago. But what's really changed is the ability to personalize based on you know, knowledge at your fingertips. LinkedIn didn't really exist you know, the way it does now 15 years ago. The, the ability to see a picture of who you're calling or who you're emailing to get a kind of a flavor of how I should talk to this person. I would talk to you differently than I would talk to a 55-year-old wearing a suit in New York, right? And you know, vice versa. It's just a different communication style. So that didn't exist before. But where things are going now, if, if that's the question, Justin, I think that what we're going to see is a very big barrier to entry for any kind of technology that's replacing the human factor. Where I think technology will really serve us, and it is serving us now, look at the next five, 10 years, is the ability to get insights into a specific person's pain points based on what they look at online, based on what they post on social, and being able to do that on the fly, right? So right now it takes, you know, it could take 15, 20 minutes if you really wanted to dive deep and read press releases and, and look at somebody before you called them. And at scale, that's kind of difficult to do. What I think is, is going to, uh, this is an interesting analogy. Picture a bowl of water, right? And I put an inch of water in the bowl. Yeah. I go like this. 
all the water rushes to this side. And that's what technology is doing in its infant stage for this, for this space for outbound. And I do think we're kind of in the infant stage at this point still. So when, when something rushes, you know, when, when the bolt tilts and all the water rushes to one side, everybody starts doing the same thing, right? And as you know, outbound, what's working today doesn't always work tomorrow, right? If it gets overused, subject lines is an example, it like LinkedIn messages. I mean, I think this week, I, I, I you probably get more than I do. I stumbled across your, your profile. Well, you didn't really stumble across my profile. I'm on a, on a list of 3,000 people and you're sending me the same message. Your you name know, came up. <laughs> yeah, your name came up. It didn't came up in my feed. Up. You came up in my automation system. Yeah. Someone figured out LinkedIn automation recently and is, yeah. is selling it at scale because I'm getting so many like, hi, Justin, comma. I get like 50 of those a week. And then the yeah. minute I look at it, boom, I get the next one. And I'm like, uh-oh, someone yeah. figured out LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I actually, I didn't even know about until you showed me was being able to leave a voice message on, on LinkedIn chat. I think that's underutilized. I think it's an awesome thing that, I mean, I, I work with hundreds of reps and none of them are doing it as far as I know. Yeah, you and can put a video now too inside the yeah. native app where you hit the button and then you don't even have to worry about where the video is housed. Of course, I love Vidyard and BombBomb and all these new texts. So you mentioned something that takes me way back because I was really initially interested in marketing, guerrilla marketing, David Meerman Scott. Yeah who wrote The New Rules of Marketing and PR. He talks about newsjacking, tying a post to something newsworthy to get it to trend. It's really interesting, the saturation of same approaches. There, there was this email that went viral, the appropriate person email, and everyone got the yeah. template. And so that. then my CEO got 12 appropriate persons per day. I started getting forward to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's Brian Kreuzberger. That's awesome. But yeah. what's the meta? And so when I think Seth Godin, I think purple cow. So for you... How do you stand out? Because you've just framed up the problem perfectly. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, what advice do you have for XDRs to, maybe it's hyper-personalization, just to give a flavor, but what is your advice to standing out in, as that yeah. water moves and we're all using the same outreach template, for example? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the golden question. I'm going to give you uh, the answer today and the answer three months from now might be different because you do, when, that, when the water goes to one side, you kind of want to be on the other side. So you stand out that way. If we're talking first just about cold email, you know, I like to test approaches with cold email first because it removes a lot of variables. If you narrow it down to a specific vertical and persona, you don't need a lot of data to really get an accurate read. So just talking about that, what the companies I work with, I always tell them, okay, well, in the cold email, the first line of it needs to start with an observation. And you say, okay, what do you mean an observation? How do I do that at scale? Well, if you look at all your ideal customers, right, all of them, what makes them ideal? And I'll give you an example for, for Woodward strategies. They have to have SDRs. Sometimes they call them XDRs, BDRs, ADRs, whatever, right? They have to have outbound reps. If they don't, then conversation isn't really, doesn't really have a purpose. So for me, everybody on my list fits that profile. And what I'll do is I'll find out what they call their outbound reps, whether it's BDRs or SDRs or just outbound reps. And I'll populate that in my list. So when I send an email, you know, I see that you have outbound reps. I see that you have SDRs. That's an observation. So with the right subject line that doesn't look like marketing, right, it pulls a little trigger to get them to subconsciously see it in their inbox. That, that is the approach that is really effective for, for me and for the companies I work with. Um, so starting it with that observation. And, you know, I'm not the only one that, that talks about doing that in this space. But I think that if, if an SDR or an XDR looks at 
their their prospect list and they take out all the fluff, they take out all the advocates, they just look at the ideal ones and they 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 say, okay, well, what is it that makes them ideal? You know, they work with embedded systems, they they just raised a series C, whatever that is, whatever that, that variable is, use that in the beginning. Because what it does is it takes the prospect to a point of relevant clarity. You know, how like what what is this? I need a mental image of what this is and, and some idea of how it's familiar or relevant to me. It doesn't have to be comprehensive. It's just something that gives them that that first sort of point A to B contact in their brain and it keeps them focused as they're reading the rest of the email. If you don't do that, what happens is the, the open rates and also the reply rates just plummet. And it's incredibly uh, it's incredible how effective, you know, just the, the most minor nuance is because when I look at the data and track everything with data, the most minor thing can just completely change the entire picture. So I don't know if that answers the question, but you know, what, what I'm doing now is, is I'm trying to find the companies and saying, okay, well, let's look at what observation we can make that feels very, very personalized that applies to our list or to a major portion of our list. We can operate that at scale. It's a really interesting detail orientation. So a couple of analogies here is one, I mean, Sometimes they would say like Frank Sinatra, the people in the audience in Vegas would feel like he was singing just to them. Yeah. Some people ask me, how do I personalize email? Well, I write one very personalized email to one target. And sometimes I'll take that and then I'll port that to the rest of the list because if it's so authentic, and a lot of times it's the linguistics and syntax and the way it's written that makes it a pattern interrupt because it doesn't look templatized like marketing. Mm -hmm. It's maybe not perfect looking. Right now, there's this whole debate and great work being done by Beck Holland and Josh Braun mm-hmm. about ways to do personalization. One of my favorites is Jeremy Donovan of this thing called Hyper. Like, yes, you could train an AI to go to minute 616 of a YouTube and take that one quote or go to a 10K or 10Q and find that one piece. How much personalization do you need? How relevant does it have to be? Like, what's your philosophy around personalization, relevance, and timing? Because there's quite a lot of debates I mean, maybe hyper-personalization is too far, right? I talked to Connect and Cell. It's like, if you spend all your time on research, you're missing at-bats. Yeah. Spectrum. How are you finding that in Woodward Strategies with your clients? Yeah. What I'm seeking on these podcasts is combination of utility, ideas, and vision. So I want to give people practical tips, too, sure, so they can learn from you and apply it. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. That, that's an awesome question. It's sort of the golden question. The, the way that... I recommend doing it the way I do it and and the companies that I work with do it. We take the time in the beginning to look at our list. And a lot of times they already have a list or sometimes they have to build one. And we, if it's not already done, we group it out into persona groups. That doesn't necessarily mean one title. It could be a group of titles. Let me give you an example. My ideal persona is a VP of sales or a chief revenue officer, right? It's not an SDR manager, right? It's not a sales manager. It's a chief revenue officer or a VP of sales. I consider those two, the VP and the chief revenue officer, the same persona group because they're both forecasting focused, right? They both forecast to either the CEO or sometimes the board of directors, and they get their, their insights to inform that from, you know, the, the sales team performance in a given quarter. Whereas a sales manager is typically the way they look at the world, right? The lens that they look through is quota driven. It's monthly numbers. Okay. So here's an example. If I took my list and I only, and I say I had sales managers. Say they were like a tier B consultant, so they're not for me, but say they were. I would put them on their own list. So I would do that work once. So my, my list is broken out by groups of personas that have the same pain points and they use the same internal vernacular when they're, when they're thinking, right? And my goal is, talk about personalization at scale, is to 
group them in groups so I can write copy that mirrors their internal vernacular. It sounds like they think. Because when you do that, it's insane traction that you get. So here's an example. If I were talking about what Woodward Strategies does to my ideal persona, Chief Revenue Officer of VP of Sales, I might talk about it through the lens of how it will help them with forecasting, right? Because it's predictable outputs to inputs. If I was talking to a sales manager, I would make the same point, but I would use different words. I would talk about monthly numbers and how it helps exceed quota, right? So if you like a car, this is an unrelated example. If you like cars, I know you like cars, right? But you're an engine person. You love engines. And that's the way you look at the world when you're looking at a car. And I just bought a car. I'd say to you, you know, if I want to resonate with you, I would talk about the car through the lens of what the engine is, the V8, is it's wind turbine, whatever it is, because that's what you care about. I wouldn't talk about the wheels. If I did, you probably wouldn't really, you would forget it three minutes later, right? So that's the, uh, the part that we can do the work in the beginning and continue to use the benefit for without doing the work again is, is making the list, writing persona specific emails or cold calls, right? I mean, we use cold call scripts not to hold in front of your face and read, but it's really more that mental exercise. So that, that part takes care of most of the personalization. The other part is that first line. So I find it equally effective to create the majority of your message, just use cold emails as an example, and keep that the same for each persona. And then the first line, if you want to add some personalization to that, you can. Sometimes you don't really need to. Sometimes you can, you can find that observation that is you know, specific and relevant to each one of those personas on your list, and then you can use the same template without any personalization. Very, very effectively. There's a lot of paradoxes for folks like us who have sent hundreds of thousands of emails, in my case, millions, or done this for dozens of clients at the same time. It's like sometimes you can use a template and it does work. And sometimes you can send the same message. And sometimes you can over-personalize. And sometimes the hyper-personalized messaging falls Mm -hmm. flat. The beauty is we have sequencers now. We have Mm data-driven systems. And we can A-B test all this stuff and figure out with our challenge. What I love about what you're saying though is think like the prospect. I read this book by uh, Lee Bartlett, the number one bestseller. He t- it turns out he's a champion fly <laughs> fisherman. He thinks like the fish. He's like, okay, that's the deeper water. So the other fishermen weren't over there. And he puts the, all these fishing analogies. And I yeah. grew up fishing, but walk a mile in their shoes. You, like what you just said, it's the nuance. It's like a CRO is a different job than a VP mm-hmm. of sales. And there could be a total commonality where that message resonates to both of them perfectly. But then there's an A-B test where there's something yeah. distinct. And there's certain value props that resonate throughout the revenue org that you wouldn't really want to change because it's almost like a pillar. That's what's beautiful about reading a 10K and a 10Q is you get this sort of like mission-driven overall mm-hmm. challenge where the whole, it's like OKRs. I mean, the whole company's aligned yeah. toward it. What kind of tech stacks do you use? I mean, we're in the era of the water shifting to a Cambrian explosion. So to frame this up, about 300 million went into even sequencer technology in 2019. And Aragon Research predicts 5 billion by 2023. So we're going to have like a a Loomiscape situation. Like we're in marketing technology, there's 200 vendors, now there's 7,000 vendors in the Loomiscapes. Luma partners, the VCs, if you put this together. How is that impacting Woodward strategies? How, which techs are you using? You don't have to call out names specifically, but like, what's your approach to yeah. tech stack? So I typically, well, I have to use the tech stack, tech stack that the client company uses, right? A lot of times okay. they'll ask me for, if they don't have their stack set up in a way that they're happy with, they'll ask me for, for suggestions. You know, I don't have any relationship with this company, but I think outreach is fantastic. I think it's the best for, for email just because of the, 
the reliability of the analytics. I've had some, some, a lot of issues with some of the others, but that could have really nothing to do with the companies. It could be more about how it was installed. You know, okay. I, I, so that, that's one, but one of the things that I think is really important to, to note, and I think this, I think you probably align with this. I don't like to put anything in the sequencer that's not tested. So I put the winners in there. I don't like to build an eight step sequence that's never been tested because what happens is the data that you get from the first step usually will inform changes that you want to make to all the other steps. So what we do, I have to pause yeah. you there because that's quotable. I never put something in a sequencer yeah. that's not already a winner. And I also wanted to double click for your earlier mm-hmm. comment about the first yeah. line is it's actually just the structure of that's mobile right. phones. You really only see the subject line and the preview mm-hmm. text. And so what you're really doing is optimizing for mobile responsive right. design. I mean, that first line is, is precious real estate. I don't even uh, indent. I, you know, I'll say, hi, Justin, and I'll go straight across. You know, I see online that you're hiring SDRs. I don't indent. And do you know why that works? Because nine, it's outrunning the bear, right? We're both outrunning a bear. If I have a moped and you have the best track shoes in the world, you're going to get eaten yeah. by the bear. The problem yeah. is that I, too, have sat inside the CEO's LinkedIn yeah. and emails, and every single email is, hope you're doing that. well. And so that first <laughs> line is gone. And so you go through, and it's like, synergy, hope you're doing well. Synergy, hope you're doing well. And like, what is it? Delete, 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 delete. But if someone said, boom, and they put like, why <laughs> in the mm-hmm. first sentence, your gut instinct, we all have manners and respects. We're like, we have to have a pleasantry. Yeah. We have to say, how's the weather? But the truth, like high D, like disc profile decision makers, like get yeah. to the point. Why should I open email? Think like a copywriter. Like the purpose of the title is to get to the first sentence. The first sentence is to get exactly to the right. second. So I'm just, so much research I've done so supports that insight. And so I want people who listen to start experimenting with their first line. Yeah. I mean, think every, right on. I mean, everything you just said is... is tattooed on my arm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> if you think about it like this, zoom out for a minute. And I always tell companies to do this after, after a lot of time has gone into crafting a template that we're going to test, you know, a lot of thought goes into it. The final question I ask is what's the path of least resistance? We all get a shit ton of emails. Excuse my language. We get a lot of emails in the morning when you wake up, there's a hundred emails in there that haven't been opened. And subconsciously you're able to somehow siphon out what you're not going to open versus the ones that are specific and relevant to you. That happens subconsciously, right? So the way we receive information, this goes into the psychology behind it. The way that we receive information when we're caught off guard is not the same as it is in a discussion like we're having now, right? It We receive information with images, right? And images are mental pictures and our subconscious mind will, you know, milliseconds, just boom. Is this relevant or familiar? Does it connect to anything that's relevant or familiar to you? And if it does, you notice it. And that's what makes you notice at a glance, like what emails out of this hundred emails in my inbox, what emails are relevant to me and which ones are, are just mass emails, right? Using words like, for instance, using words like COVID-19, which we've, because we've all gotten hundred emails from every utility, every phone company, every software we use, our response to COVID-19, the moment we see subconsciously, we see it sees COVID-19, we don't consciously notice it anymore. We certainly don't open it. And the reason why that is, is because COVID-19 has, our brains have become conditioned to look at that and put it into the marketing bucket or put it into the mass email bucket. So when we say, I hope all is well, kind of happens, it kind of does the same exact thing. I mean, it doesn't come across as genuine because it's a, it's just an overused term. We don't know the prospect, you know, so that first line, you know, it needs to be about them because this is, this is something I I don't like saying because it sounds negative, but it's the truth. Prospects don't care about us. 
They don't know us, so they don't have an, any reason to care about us. So they only care about themselves. And this is the subconscious level in the beginning when they're looking at a cold email. So that first line has to be about them. You can get into give them a reason to care about you later when you're dealing with a logical brain, but that first line needs to be about them. So if you think about what makes you open an email, it's the same exact psychology that makes a prospect open an email, right? If you're, if you're a chief revenue officer, right? And I send you an email that says your company's name and then pipeline, all, all lowercase, you're probably going to open that email because pipeline, you know, you get this little pit in your stomach because you're responsible for that, right? <laughs> and it's it, the path of least resistance is to open it, right? Versus not because you prefer to just check what it is first before discarding it. So what is the path of least resistance? Is it to open or is it to ignore it? And that's the way that you really need to think before you put something in the field. I love how you're able to move from micro to macro in your analysis and you're able to move from old school to, but I'm all over outreach dot, you know, (laughs) IO. So like you, you're doing like modern and classic and you're fusing that in the approach. Here's a $64 million question. This stuff's pretty saturated. How are you with Woodward strategies differentiating the way you go to it? Is it, is it all this psychology and thinking around AB testing measure Mm -hmm. twice cut once? Because I have talked to a lot of folks that have a whole different approach to this. They, they might line up a lot of experiments and have a testing phase and that's where they get to it. How are you able to only run what's working? That's it. It might be proprietary. That might be your differentiator. Are you, doing like kind of like testing paint on a wall and then from that initial bit scaling up curious about your process because yeah. I think a lot of people would be excited to learn how you do it if you're open source or it'd be a reason to hire you obviously yeah so I'll give you the, the the rundown of how it works I don't test anything at scale or I don't put anything out in the field at scale until it's a complete winner proven winner that's awesome yeah yeah and when we when we narrow down to those persona groups you know when you narrow down to titles that care about the same thing, they have the same pain points and they have the same internal vernacular. Then you can, you, you create a hypothesis about how they would articulate our value. If there was no you know, filter and they're just thinking about, they know everything about us and what's going through their mind, what are those words? That's what we test. So, but when we narrow it down like that, we can actually get a clean read on the data by sending a message 150 times. The data kind of stops changing at that point. It swings pretty wildly going up to 130 and then it tapers down and stops at 150. And the reason why that is is we're removing, we're removing variables. We're not incorporating cold calls with the test. It's just one email to one persona group that cares about the same thing. So if the open rate's high, we don't touch that first line. We don't touch the subject line. What we're really testing is that resonance point, right? How we're articulating what we do through the lens of how they care about it, right? So how we talk about the car through the lens of looking at the engine, for example. And that's the part we test. So we'll make one change to the template. And we'll put it back out in the field and send it 150 times to that same, you know, group type of persona. And then we'll see what changes with the data. That process takes anywhere from one week to three weeks, depending on, you know, if we miss the first test and we, you know, with the dud or whatnot. So we take the winners from that and we test everything, by the way, in two-step sequences. So if an email has a good open rate, most prospects still didn't read it. (laughs) So what we do, and there's probably some people out there that don't agree with this, but this is the way we do it. We create a template that's persona specific and we incorporate the psychology that, that's in my program to, and uh, how we write it. You know, relevant clarity in the beginning, help inform a mental image that's some way connected to something they're familiar with. What we do through the lens of, of, that they look through the world. And then when we talk about our value, we do it in story form, right? Because your subconscious mind is designed to protect you from threats. So if I use a biasing statement and I say, 
you know, I can save you up to 300% or more. The up to and the or more are biasing statements. So what is a biasing statement? Biasing statement is any word or phrase, right, that conveys to you subconsciously that I'm trying to influence you. And what happens with a biasing statement when you're dealing with outbound, okay, this doesn't really apply later in the, in the sales process. This is outbound. Subconsciously, you put up a guard because I'm trying to influence you. So your subconscious mind treats that like a threat. And so now everything you're hearing or everything you're reading is going through the filter of, of skepticism, right? So what I do, and this is incredibly effective, we call it value and story form. I remove you and I sometimes remove me from the picture. And I, I say, you know, for the results are significant, for example, and I'll talk about some other company that you can visualize yourself as and tell them what happened with no biasing statements. I'm not building it up. I'm using very neutral language. And then the resistance-free call to action. But we test a message like that after we create it with that psychology in a two-step sequence. The first email is the initial email. Four days later, the second email has one job to do. It's to draw the, the prospect back to that original message that we put so much thought into, the one we're testing. So it's, it looks like this. You know, hi, Justin, I wanted to circle back on the below, in parentheses, to see if you'd be open to speak with me sometime in the next week or so, and then paste that original message right below it, draw them back to it. So we read the data from the first send and the follow-up send, and we decide if it's a winner. If it's a winner, we take the insight that we learned from that messaging for that persona group, and we create a larger sequence. And that's when we go at scale and outreach. That's when we send it, you know, 5,000 times. I love it. Now, you may not realize this, but I somehow or another became the recipient of some of your messages. Oh, did you? Impressed. <laughs> so yeah. I'm on your list somehow, which is totally cool. And I was definitely impressed by that. We only have a few more minutes, but I would say... You're getting into the tech stacks. We're talking very granularly now about writing emails. Awesome topic for all XDRs in the world right now. Where is this going? And let me ask you this. Like emails could pass the Turing test. They could be so personalized and perfect with the machines and the ML and the AI by 2025, 2035, 2050 Mm -hmm. that they could almost get regulated where it has to say this is Greg's AI writing to you. But in the near term, thinking about beyond sales development, where is this industry going? What are some of your predictions in the next five years? Let's make this more practical. You yeah. can get as futuristic as you want. You can talk about flying cars. <laughs> I think regulation is coming. I mean, it already is. It already came with GDPR, right? So whenever somebody starts doing something at scale and everybody starts doing it, it gets regulated. That seems to be the pattern. I think social is going to get regulated. Right now, as you know, LinkedIn is, is unregulated. It's a, it's a total open playing field. You can't hurt your sender score with it. That'll change. I, I think that where we get information is going to have to be a disclosure item when we're personalizing. I think that's coming. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I really think it is. The other thing, though, is, you know, if, if you're looking at like the future of XDR, that role, I think that the part that technology will replace is everything other than the human factor. Right. So it'll make I think technology will improve. It'll certainly attempt to replace the, the XDR role, but I don't think it'll be successful because that human factor, um, that human factor, it, it really needs to be there because if with outbound, you don't have any reason to talk to me, right? You have no reason to uh, read my email and you especially, there's no resistance to ignoring it if you know it's coming from the machine. <laughs> it's harder to ignore a person than it is a machine. So it's just that little bit of resistance that you'll lose if you go all automated. I think that technology will allow uh, account executives to do more of an ADR role or an XDR role uh, in conjunction with their other responsibilities. Because I think technology is going to make the research and the personalization it, 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 at your fingertips. It'll be like I, on your podcast a week or two ago, a company was, was called the Google of, of 
for salespeople or outbound or whatever it was. That's yeah, a great analogy. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think, <laughs> I think that, I think that's where it's going. I mean, you know, I think that instead of having to uh, do 15 minutes of research to really personalize something, read a 10 K an annual report, read the chair, chairman's letter, risk factors. I think that's going to be at your fingertips much more easily with, with future technology. Just like LinkedIn, if you look at where LinkedIn sales nav is now versus what we had 15 years ago, it's crazy. Yeah. I'm certainly, certainly impressed by what I heard today. I was thinking about a lot of experiments I've run and research I've done in tech that I've helped invested in either creating or deploying. Mm -hmm. And the Greg Woodward approach (laughs) is thinking to thoughtfulness around just something as simple as sending an email sequence. It's so deep. You've gone so deep in this half hour. And I think right now one brain is equal to all human compute, not for long. But that piece of really the strategy yeah. is really interesting and the psychology and really thinking the artistry of how you're thinking about verbal communication and concepts like that. I think that's really helpful to our audience. So I really appreciate you taking a 202 look today at some deeper yeah. con- uh, context. I'd love to have you on again. Awesome. And uh, yeah, just keep knocking out of the park. Let me know if you uh, invent the flux capacitor or you because <laughs> I'm too square because I want to know. But thanks for open sourcing some of your techniques today. Cool. Thanks for having me on, Justin. I appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. We'll talk soon. All right. Cheers.